statistically, I mean, those kids are sweet and cute. And statistically, our time with them is so limited. Um, well, not statistically, actually. Statistically, here's what I know about those three beautiful kids. Um, they're looking to build a history with somebody. And if they don't build it with us, they're going to build it with somebody else. They're going to build it with somebody that comes along and allows them to flow into their community that seems to care and love about them more than this community. They're going to build it with some boy that seems to care about them more than maybe the fathers of this community have. Statistically, it's very likely that one of those three kids is going to struggle with a mental illness. CDC now says that 20% of our kids, by the time they're 16 years old, are struggling with a mental illness. They need a place, they need a history with somebody that, that they could go, I can go to these people in this place and find healing. And so I'm, I'm growing incrementally passionate about trying to become not a, a, a church. I mean, if you, you look into the history of the word church, it's essentially a movement, a, a community on the move together. I am incrementally passionate about becoming a community that is on the move together, uh, both out into our community and in here with our kids, providing a place of healing and hope. And that's going to take some work and some sacrifice. Uh, and so next week, I'm going to share with you some of the plans. But in the meantime, would you pray um, for those three and for the other kids that are upstairs? They are an incredible gift, but time is going by. With that, let's jump back into uh, this series called Origins. Kids, as I just said to you, are impressionable. I've watched four of them grow up over the last 25 years. I know how easily influenced my kids are. You know, as you work your way through the stages, they get a little older, you start to see them going through the same stage the last one went to. I don't know, when they're like 12, anybody remember how your kids suddenly start trying on different personalities? You know, like all of a sudden it's like, I dropped a kid off that was named John, I picked up a kid named Tony, right? Um, and I'm, I'm, I've said to them all at different points in their life, stop being like whoever, be like John. It, it's a stage that they have. They're, they're very easy, easily impressioned, um, impressed upon. Now, with that said, having watched myself grow up over the last 50 or so years, I've learned how impressionable and easily influenced I am. Um, I get influenced quickly, easily. I'm not above it. Two examples that I can give you, not necessarily in my, my full adult years, but when I was a kid, um, I had a couple of dreams. I've told you this over the years. I had two specific, I wanted to be a singer. Um, that didn't work out for me. I tried that last week if you were here. It was kind of a, a crash and burn. Um, it was my one shot at it. So uh, the other thing I wanted to be was a gas station man. And I achieved that dream very early in life um, at about the age of 16. I, uh, see, I was a gas station man back in the day, right, when you actually had to, like, pump the gas, you know, you'd have the little machine that stopped it, you'd have tanks overrunning, people getting mad. That was, that was back in the day. And, you know, there can be a rough crowd over at the gas station crowd, right? Um, and so, uh, I, you know, there's kind of a thing in my house growing up, you were not allowed to curse. Like, my parents didn't curse, curse much, we didn't hear a lot of cursing. Um, but I was introduced to a whole new vocabulary at the Panther Valley Shell. Um, one of, you know, a vocabulary which, like, the more I hung out there, the more it influenced my language. They might go, okay, you're a kid, and that's a silly thing. It, it goes beyond that. I'm telling you, it's, it seeps in everywhere. I have a friend named John. I've told you, I've spoken about my friend John over the years. 
My friend John, this was when we were in our 20s, I, we worked together, John had a stuttering problem. Brilliant guy, but he, he would stutter when he talked, just like I did there, I don't know if you caught it. Just talking about John, I start to stutter. And so I used to come home from work, I'm a 25 year old man, I'd come home from work, and Joan would start listening to me talk, she'd go, you were hanging out with John today, weren't you? Because I'm so easily influenced by what's going on around me. And, and so we've been studying this book of our shared origins, this book called Genesis. The goal has been to learn from our history so that in my life and in your life, we're not doomed to repeat it. And so here's what I want you to understand as we begin and talk about influence today. Here's what I hope we're learning together. That you and I were meant for, for so much more, something bigger, greater, grander, and certainly more eternal than the lives that we find ourselves currently kind of living. We were meant for a place called Eden, but our shared story shows that our choices over time have created uh, a place somewhere far east of that, where we dwell. We were meant for this four-part harmony called shalom, where there would be peace and prosperity and unity within ourselves, between each other and God and creation, all of it being held together by this benevolent, wonderful God. But given the choice, a choice that I make, you make, we still make on a daily basis, we chose and we choose to not allow God to be God, which is what held shalom together. We, we instead decide that we will choose for ourselves good and evil, right and wrong. We choose to be our own gods and decide and define for ourselves how we live, where we go, and what we're going to be and do. And as we've watched over these weeks in Origins, as we've watched the breakdown of Shalom play out from Adam to Abraham, one thing I think we can all agree on as you study this, and as even you look in our world today, we are terrible at being gods. Can I get an amen? You're lying, you don't believe that, because I know you're going to go home, and you're, you're going to say, I know I'm terrible at being God. However, in this one instance, I'm sure I know more than he does. It's a real struggle with us. We want to say amen. We know we're not that good at it, but we hold it tight. Our ways, living according to our nature, it just ushers into the world, our homes, this concept, what the Bible calls this kind of religious word of sin, missing the mark that God has set out for us. And so we usher in through this brokenness and violence, evil, hatred in small ways, and even in big ways, like we saw in Parkland, Florida this week. The brokenness, the pain. What I can't help but notice in our ancient story and in our modern story is the power of influence and sway that we have over one another. For a people, it's really funny, for a people who are so fiercely independent of God, right? We don't want God to have influence in our lives. We want him to bless what we're doing, but we'll take it from there. It's amazing how inf easily influenced we are by everybody else towards this brokenness that exists within us and outside of us. You see, here's the truth. As a dad, as a father, I worry so much about who and what is influencing my kids. Right? If you're a mom and dad, this is what you spend most of your time worried about. Who are my kids hanging out with? Who are their influences? But I think the reality is I need to start worrying a bit more about who and what is influencing me. And then how I'm influencing my kids. If you think about it, right, the shared experience stories we've been talking about starts with the slow power of influence, the serpent 
influences Eve, and Eve influences Adam, and the spiral of the story begins. Now, I'm going to jump ahead. Last week, we talked about this central figure in the three great religions of the world, Abraham, and the concept of Abraham trying to do life my way. This week, I want to look at a story that the writer of this book, this ancient book, tells us about Abraham's nephew, a relative named Lot. Now, if you know anything about the story, when God first comes to Abraham with his three-point promise that we discussed last week, and then he tells him, I want you to go, leave everything you know, and go, Lot, for reasons unknown, Lot goes with his uncle. Now, they're supposed to go to a land that God will show them, but famine strikes along the way, and so they decide to go to a land of their own choosing called Egypt. Now, if you remember, Abraham, he gets to Egypt, he gets scared, he starts to do things his own way, and he realizes Sarah, his wife, you know, she's pretty cute. It's going to happen when Pharaoh sees her. He's probably going to take her as his own. He's probably going to kill me then. So in order to preserve his own life, Abraham tells Sarah to pretend to be his sister. This way they'll take her and do to her what they want, but he will live. This is the father of our faith. Now, this is the first time he does this. As we saw last week, he actually does it again later on in the story. Now, to make a long story short, to keep Abraham happy because he thought he was Sarah's brother, not husband, Pharaoh, who's in charge of Egypt, gives Abraham lots of stuff. The writer of Genesis specifically says that in order to keep him happy, he gives him sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But once Pharaoh realizes that he's been duped and Sarah and Abraham were actually married, he throws the two of them and their nephew Lot out of Egypt. And so here's where we pick up the story. Jump in with me. This is a crazy story. I don't know why anybody would write this story down. So Abraham went from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abraham had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and in gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place, listen to this now, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tents had been earlier. Now, the writer includes this cool little detail that doesn't translate as well in English. He says they camped between Bethel and Ai. Bethel, in the Hebrew that it was written in, anybody know what Bethel means? House of God. He camped between Bethel and Ai. Does anybody know what Ai means in Hebrew? Ruin. He camped between the house of God and ruin. Right on the fence. Could go either way. In a sense, right, for a moment, they're fence sitters determining, well, house of God over there. There's ruin over there. Funny thing about ruin, it never looks like ruin, does it? Where are they going to go? Are they going to move towards God? Are they going to move towards this house of ruin? Now, they have lots of stuff, right, from their time in, in Egypt. And Abraham's servants and Lot's servants, guess what they start to do? The same thing we always do when we have lots of stuff. They begin fighting over the stuff. Because the land that they're on there in between these two places, can't support all of their master's flocks. So Abraham comes up with a very reasonable plan, and he says to Lot, he goes, look, we're family. 
Let's not ruin the family by fighting over our possessions in this land. Here's the deal. You pick which way you're going to go. You go left, I'll go right. Uh, I, you go right, I'll go left. Here's what the writer records about Lot's decisions. Uh, decision. He says that Lot took a long look at the fertile plans, or plains of the Jordan Valley in the direction of Zor. The whole area was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord or the beautiful land of Egypt. And point number one here would be this. Friends, beware of the long look. The long look, the long look can be bad. He didn't take a glance. He didn't pray about it and say, God, you know, you said you were going to lead us to where you wanted us to go. He didn't ask for wisdom. He didn't go back to Abraham and say, you know, Abraham, you being my uncle and having a position of, of authority and seniority in our relationship, you should choose. I'll go in the other direction. Now, he took a really good long look. And he says that uh, the scripture says that he saw the plain of Jordan and it was well watered like the garden of the Lord and the land of Egypt. It looked like both to him, and that was the nature of Lot's choice. Check this out. He had just come from Egypt, and Egypt, as we talked about, Egypt is the place in Scripture that always looks good and promises things. It's a land of materialism and commercialism, easy wealth, and looks so good to him. But in addition, Lot says that it looked like the Garden of the Lord, a place like where Adam and Eve walked together in the presence of God. And so Lot looks at this city of Sodom and the plain that he thought was this place where he could have both. I can have both. I can make an easy living. I can advance myself. I can have all the cultural advantages of this, of, of this city and the culture. And I'll, I'll, it won't cost me a thing. I'll just keep having fellowship with God. I'll keep walking with God right through there. You see, he camped between the city of God and ruin. And in a sense, he wanted both. See, I don't know if that strikes your soul, but that's like the way I live most of my life. Right? I'm always pursuing the things of my own desire and hoping that God will bless. Ah, well, I can do, you know, God will bless this, God will bless that. I'm going to go my own way, choose my own path, and I'm going to hope that God will bless it along the way. We know what's right and wrong and good and evil is defined by God, and we could go that way. But when I take a long look in that other direction, at her or it, well, you know, they got a lot of stuff over there. Really cute. I mean, I, you know, look at what those kids are doing after school tonight. That looks pretty cool. Yeah, maybe I could have both. Maybe I, I could just do what I want to do. I could decide for myself where to go and just ask God to bless that. Because it's not like I don't like God. I do like him. I really... I really like a lot of things of my own choosing, too. See, in doing this, Lot kind of just puts aside this principle that runs through all of Scripture. Jesus first said it in his Sermon on the Mount. He said, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then there's this promise that all these other things will be added. But seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the righteousness of God. But Lot did exactly the other. He looks and goes, you know, that looks good over there. I think I'll seek after that. And then I'll hope 
that I'll get the blessing of God to come with me. His first priority was to find a place where he could make a good living, advances, material advantages, hope that God would go with him and bless that. And so the, the writer says this is what happened. Lot chose for himself. Let me repeat that one again because it's so good. So Lot chose for himself. The whole plain of the Jordan, he set out toward the east, further east. The two men parted company. Abraham lived in the land of Canaan. It says Abram, but as you, many of you know, his name changes to Abraham later in our story. While Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. He took a long look and he pitched his tents toward Sodom. Not in Sodom, mind you. A good man like Abraham, he would never pitch his tent in Sodom. I would never do something like that. Now, many of us have heard of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And so there's a lot of confusion about what was going on in the city. The prophet Ezekiel later on in the scripture describes Sodom and Gomorrah as this. He says that those cities were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help, this is a quote, arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things. The Hebrew word there, translated detestable, refers to something that is really morally wrong. And in Sodom, what was morally wrong was rampantly common. It was enticing. It was the normal every day. And, and so much so that Lot, he doesn't, he, he knows he can't go into Lot, godly, or to Sodom. Godly men like Lot don't go into Sodom. But it was enticing, so much so that he pitched his tent in that direction. Not just to join, but to get a good look. There's an interesting tidbit of information about Lot in the next chapter as Abraham looks to save his nephew from an enemy evasion that's occurring in Sodom. The next time you see Lot's name brought up in the story is this. The scripture writer says, they also carried off Abraham's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was, somebody saying with me, living in Sodom. Isn't it funny about the directions in which we pitch our tents? They have this like magnetic power to draw us towards them. I mean, influence is like a magnet. I'm not just gonna take a long look. Well, I'm just, I'm, I'm you know, I'm just gonna watch. I mean, nothing's wrong with watching, right? Nothing's wrong with just kind of hanging around the edges. And check this out. Lot's name comes up again. Chapter 19, the writer says that things in the city have gotten just so out of control with sin and violence and injustice and vice that God, to protect his creation, is going to eliminate the city to prevent its further spread. So the scripture says two angels are sent into the city to take a close look at what's going on there. And notice this little detail. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of the city. Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city, which, if you know anything about this, in ancient times, you can look this up, it's other places in the scripture, in ancient times, anybody that sat in the gates of the city, it had the meaning of them being an ambassador, an official representative of the city, a judge, a high-ranking official. That's who sits in the city gates. Friends, 
Long looks can be dangerous. You got to be careful where you pitch your tent. Because not only does Lot look there, not only does Lot live there, Lot becomes like the mayor. That's the funny thing about pitching your tent towards Sodom. Over time, it's not that just you wind up in Sodom. It's that Sodom winds up in you. It's the power of influence. Here you have this guy, Lot, who once walked with Abraham on a journey with God, who left all that he knew to follow him, and he winds up as mayor of Sodom. Now remember the directive given Abraham. The Lord said, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I'll show you. Abraham is still on that journey, but Lot preferred to go, as the scripture said, to the land of his own choosing. It's the story of Genesis. Trust in the promises of God. Believe, have faith in God, abiding faith that he's for you. He knows what he's doing. He's a keeper of his promises. His ways are better. He is not old-fashioned, restrictive, or holding out on you. He said, the scripture says he has a plan for you to give you a future and a hope. But so often, we prefer the land of our own choosing. There's a funny thing about Sodoms. Over time, you don't just wind up in Sodom. Sodom winds up in you. Now, you might know the story. The town is just, it's so backwards, right? I mean, injustice is everywhere, arrogance, pride, and all kinds of sexual dysfunction reign in the city. And so, so when the word gets out on the street that these visitors are in town, in this culture, the, the highest, one of the highest values in this culture was when somebody came into town, how you greeted them, how you took care of them. That measured, in a sense, the kind of people you were. Well, in Sodom, things are so twisted, hospitality is no longer a value or a demand, demanded. Instead, the men of the city decide to do the exact opposite, and they bang on Abraham's door, demanding the men be sent outside to be raped. This is how twisted things have gotten in this city. This is the culture in which Abraham and his family now live and breathe and have their being. See, there's a funny thing about Sodom. But you don't just wind up in Sodom. I mean, Sodom, Sodom winds up in you. And what would have once seemed inconceivable to a man who was walking with Abram what once would have seemed inconceivable to a man who was simply just going to pitch his tent towards Sodom. What would have seemed completely un undescribable, unbelievable, it couldn't happen to a man that the Bible claims is righteous. Scripture says this, Lot went outside to meet them. And he shut the door behind him and he said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. It's the funny thing about Sodom. You don't just wind up in Sodom. Sodom winds up in you. Now look, influence comes from all kinds of sources. Certainly Sodom had it, but the ability for a father to give his daughters over to a group of men to do with them what you like I mean, maybe he'd also watched his uncle Abraham give away his Aunt Sarah 
to the kings of Egypt and allow them to do what they like. Maybe that played a part too. See, that's what I worry about. As a dad and as a pastor that stands up here every week, I have huge influence on my kids. The reality is you, you guys let me talk to you every week, so I have some influence in your lives. There's an old saying that says, values are caught and not taught. I so, who wishes that was not true? I just wish that my kids would do what I tell them to do, not what I do. See, my kids have grown up in my city, in my home, breathing in day after day my cultural values, not the ones that I speak about, not the ones that I preach about on Sunday. They breathe in and see the ones I live, and those values get in deep. It's a funny story. It's not actually funny. It's quite sad, actually. Abraham has a son, Isaac. Some of you know that, right? Isaac, he winds up in a city called Gerar. And as Isaac goes into the city, he's married to a little hot number herself named Rebecca. And as he rolls into Gerar, he takes a look over at his hottie wife and he goes, you know, you're kind of cute. I think if I roll into this city with you on my arm, these guys that are in control here might decide that they want you and they would kill me. So here's what I want you to do. Does anybody have any idea what Abraham's son, what plan he might come up with, with why don't you just pretend you're my sister? The old my wife or my life dilemma he had seen played out with his dad. And just like a chip off the old block, he chose my life. Now, some of you know how this story continues with Lot. God decides to take down the city before its influence spreads. In fact, it's so hard to, to let go of that city and its culture that as Lot's wife flees, she can't help but look back and take another good long look. And she winds up, that look winds up costing her life. There's an old parable that goes something like this. You can take the girl out of the city, but you can't take the city out of the girl. And so the story of Sodom concludes, and it ends with a completely sordid detail about Lot's daughters. Some of you know it. I don't even like to read it, but what am I going to do? It's in the Bible, so don't email me. Here's what the scripture says. One day the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old and there is no man around here to give us children, as is the custom all over the earth. So we are going to do it our way. Let's get our father to drink wine and then sleep with him and preserve our family line through our father. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. And that is the end of the story of Lot. Man, you got to be careful where you pitch your tents. This one decision by Lot ends with the most controversial, morally yucky story maybe in all of antiquity. You ever wonder, if you're trying to say, if you're trying to write uh, something that will go down and say, yes, this is, these are God's people, this is the story of God working through his people, you ever wonder who would record this story? Why would you write this down? Doesn't this go? I mean, why would, would you drop the two stories about Abraham selling his wife out? Wouldn't you drop this story about Lot and his daughters? Wouldn't you forget about the story about Noah and his sons? Wouldn't you skip over the story about Isaac selling his wife out too? First of all, for me, it just proves kind of the validity of the scriptures, right? It doesn't make any sense that anybody would write this down if you were trying to prove a point. 
But here's the other thing that I love. Paul explained it this way. Check this out. He says, he's talking about these Old Testament stories. He says, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. These things happened and were written down for you. Second time we've seen this. Preserved over millennia so that this morning in Mendham, New Jersey, Monday morning at Mendham High School, Tuesday at the Mendham Tennis Club, Wednesday at the Chester Diner, in your office, at your block party, you might know this story not because it's historical, and it very well likely is, but that is not, our highest calling is not to dig for the remains of Sodom and Gomorrah so we can prove it. These things were written down as examples and warnings for us so we might remember when we walk out of this place, man, in my relationships, my workplace, with my family, I gotta take a long look. I gotta remember to watch where I pitch my tent. Have I faced towards the city of God and the way I'm living my life? Or am I bent on longing after the city of ruin and hope that God will walk with me there? Where you pitch your tent matters because you're so, I'm so easily influenced. If the righteous lot could be influenced and wind up in ruin, so can you and I, and it happens so quickly. But i got to share this final thought about this, and this is so important. For years, preachers have preached on this story, and they've used a verse picked, by the way, out of context from a letter that Paul wrote to this church in Corinth. Paul, I'm sure you know this verse because your mother, I'm sure, told you as you went out to your high school prom or something. She said, just like Paul said, do not be misled. Bad company corrects good character. And so for years, preachers have used that verse and Lot's story to tell folks how bad the people are out there, how good the people are in here, and how we have to keep them out there so we in here can stay pure and good and not be influenced by them. Preachers for millennia have been saying, don't have anything to do with them. Sure, we can make them our missions project. We can disseminate some Christian tracts about the plan of salvation. But they're bad. Their culture is bad. They're sodomites. So our answer, the Christian answer from these preachers over the year has been to pull out of the culture and create our own better culture to isolate ourselves in our own little cities filled with Christian things. It is amazing to me that what we can't put a fish on. Christian music, Christian schools, Christian plumbers, Christian lawyers, Christian radio, where you can learn about the Christian plumbers and Christian lawyers, right? You can hear about the Christian dentist. There's even a Christian mortgage broker. And I'm not against any of these things. I like Christian music. For several years, my kids went to a Christian school. I get it. Influence is powerful, and it's important that we watch, especially for our kids, the influences that come into their lives, where they pitch their tent. But as a follower, listen to me now. Listen, this is important. As a follower of Jesus Christ, I have to share with you a powerful, powerful truth that you have to hold intention, friends. You've got, I know it's attention, but you have to hold an intention. There are four Gospels that tell the story of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When John starts his Gospel, he refers to Jesus as the Word. Many of you know that, right? 
Jesus is this living, breathing message of God. Many of you know John starts his gospel this way. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. John continues, when he gets to the 14th verse of the first chapter, here's what he writes about the Word. He says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, this is just the coolest thing. You ready for this? In the Greek, that word dwelt there is a word I want to try to pronounce it best I can. Eskinosin. Eskinosin. That's right. Eskinosin. That word dwelt is eskinosin. In Greek, does anybody know what eskinosin means? Pitched his tent. Pitched his tent. And the word became flesh. And he pitched his tent among us. See, Jesus doesn't isolate because we're bad. Jesus doesn't go off to a different planet with new, bright, and shiny people who are much less messed up. Jesus doesn't choose to stay in heaven and throned on high in the constant presence of only the good, the Father, the Holy Spirit, the angels. What does Jesus do? Like Adam and Cain and Noah and Abraham, Jesus goes. He does not avoid us. He comes to us and he pitches his tent among us. Some of Jesus' last words to his disciples were, stay right here so that they don't corrupt you. Remember that, that great commandment? Of course you don't, because he didn't say it. Right? He didn't say, stay right here so they don't corrupt you. He said, go and make disciples. Invite them in. Now, we have to recognize the power of influence, but we have to understand for followers of Jesus, there is also a purpose to influence. Jesus twice uses this image of yeast in his teaching, right? Yeast is a picture in the scripture of this, of like a contagion, an influ a, a strong influence. And so at one point, he warns his followers to beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, which is actually pretty funny because he's actually not warning about the people out there that are bad. He's, wor he's worried about these legalistic religious folks who are, are judgmental about who's touchable and reachable, who's in, who's not. And he says, be careful because that'll get in you. But he also used it to describe something else. He, he used it to describe the kingdom of God. Here's what he said. He told them another parable, the scripture says. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed it into about, notice the detail, mixed it into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked its way all through the dough. It's almost like this funny overstatement to make his point. It's just a tiny bit of yeast in a 60 pound batch of flour. The yeast looks overmatched. But as any cook knows, it has incredible power to permeate the whole bunch. The flour doesn't actually stand a chance. And this is you, and this is me, created with the purpose of being, go right back to our start, created with the purpose of being image bearers of the Most High God. Jesus said, you're to be the light of the world. You're to be a city set on a hill. There is a tension, friends. Yes, we need to watch where we pitch our tents and understand the power of influence. If you are here this morning, you're not interested in the whole Jesus thing. I get it. You know, you were looking to hang out with somebody on a snowy morning and so you stumbled in here. I get it. 
If you're not interested in it, then there's an ancient lesson for you to keep in mind. Understand what we take long looks at, where we pinch our tents, we need to be careful because no matter how strong a person we might be, we're easily influenced. But if you are a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, you cannot leave the story right there because you are not called to be an isolationist. We are not called to separate ourselves. I know there's a scripture, we could talk about that scripture, that's actually talking, that, that there's a scripture that says come out from them, that's actually talking about religious people too. We're not called to isolate ourselves from the sin and the suffering or the pain of the world. We're called like Jesus to enter it, but like Jesus to be immune to it. How? You have to be so filled up with the life of Jesus. You have to be so connecting to the living spirit of God that instead of the world infecting us, we infect it. My guess would be that the same God who longs to walk again with his people like he did in the garden, my guess is that he would prefer his people spend more time pursuing his presence than they do trying to isolate themselves from the presence of God. You with me on that? Parents, I didn't do as good a job on this as I should have. But what if we spent as much time with our kids or our grandkids constantly ushering them into the presence of God and his ways, making God real and fun, teaching them that God actually is for them, that he is not all of the things that the world says, making God tangible to them. What if we worried, what if we worried if we were getting as much God into them as we worried about making sure bad influences didn't come into their lives? Could you imagine what would happen to your kids? I mean, if we've learned anything over these weeks, it's that the corruption doesn't come from out there. Remember, Noah, Noah was on the boat. The hole out there was gone. The problem is in here. Our hearts are prone to wander. We can't blame it all on others all the time. We were created with the purpose of influence, but as we learn from Lot, you gotta watch where you pitch your tent. We have the purpose to be influenced by, surrounded by, regularly, continually, in the presence, under the influence of God and each other. Why, why, why do I keep telling you to read the Bible? Why do I keep telling you to create some space in your life for God? What, it's snowing outside. Why didn't I just cancel church this morning? This is so important. We have to be people that sit at the holy gates of God's city. I need worship. I need teaching. I need community. I need the scriptures. I need to be alone with God. This is why we get in small groups. This is why we have Bible studies. This is why we have mentoring groups. They are, God is not impressed that you're going to, to church. This is not a holy obligation for you. Can I just share that with you? We come here because we need it. Influence is powerful, but it is also purposeful. And so we have to go back into our offices and neighborhoods and schools contagious with the hope and promise of Jesus Christ. As the band comes up, I just got to share a story. Last night I went out with Joan. Uh, we were at a friend's house. They had a cocktail party, which probably right off the bat, some of you are going, you shouldn't have been at a cocktail party. But um, so we were down at the cocktail party and uh, there's some guys in the neighborhood that live all around my house. And these are, um, by their own definition, men's men. Uh, they, they talk in ways uh, that you wouldn't talk in church. They behave in ways in which you wouldn't behave in church. And they're quite uh, aware that I'm a church guy. In fact, last night they were pulling up, uh, pulling up church online and laughing about me being up here and all the rest. 
And so uh, I was sitting around with them, and uh, there was six, eight of them, and there was another guy there that I didn't really know. And at one point they said, oh, you know, they're busting my chops. And they said, this is John. He's a pastor. Um, you don't need to watch what you say because we just say whatever we want. And uh, the guy was kind of taken aback at their conversation. He looked at me and he goes, I can't believe that you would hang out with them. And I just thought right back to the story. He came and pitched his tent amongst us. That's the story of the gospel. Watch where you pitch your tent. And so, Father, as we come, some of us, Lord, need to think through where we're pitching our tent. Some of us have taken way too long a look at things that we should not be setting before our eyes. Lord, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit... The Holy Spirit, this part of God that you described, this would come and convict us of our sin and point us towards Christ, this presence of God on the earth called the Holy Spirit, that he would be at work right now, showing each of us, maybe where we've set our eyes, maybe where we've pitched our tents, in a direction from which we need to turn. And then, Lord, there's other places. We do this out of fear, Lord, and I know we do it out of obedience. We Try so hard not to sin, Lord. I remember my mother-in-law, she never saw a movie, and one day I said, you know, Mom, why don't you, we're going to go to a, a Christmas movie. Why don't you come? And why have you never gone to a movie? And she said, well, I was always told that what if Jesus came back and I was in the movie theater? So many of us do it out of good motive, Lord. We want to isolate and separate so we don't, we don't sin. We don't want influence in our lives. Lord, would you convince us that we are sons and daughters of the Most High? We're the salt of the earth. We're to be the shining city on a hill. For those of us that need to turn our tents and look a different direction, maybe some of us need to turn our tents and look a bit towards the city of God. Some of us need to turn our tents, start worrying about people that are outside of the city of the God. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, would you convince us of each of those places in our own lives, homes, and hearts. In Jesus' name.